Hi there, I'm Dan Jones. Welcome to the podcast. Here I have conversations with people whose work intersects with climate in some way. I'm an oceanographer working at the British Antarctic Survey, and I started this podcast a couple years ago because I love talking with and learning from other researchers. Today I'm thrilled to bring you a two-part conversation with Professor Anand Nanadeskan. Anand is a professor in the Earth and Planetary Sciences Department at Johns Hopkins University. He uses climate models and climate data sets to investigate how the ocean interacts with other parts of the climate system, namely the biosphere, the atmosphere, and the cryosphere. He's worked on how mixing processes affect large-scale climate. And for more on that, by the way, go back and listen to the Sonia Legg episode. We talk about that topic a lot there. He's also worked on Earth system variability and on how biology can affect the physics of the ocean. You know, normally we think of it as the other way around. We think about the physics driving the biology, and that's normally true, like ocean circulation and ocean temperatures drive a lot of the biological activity. But there are cases, there are mechanisms by which the biology can feed back, so to speak, onto the physical circulation, onto the mixing, onto the physical properties of the ocean. In this episode, we talk about the linearity and nonlinearity of the biological response of the ocean to changes in the atmosphere, for example, large changes in oxygen. Uh, a linear change is basically if you double the input, you double the output. You can sort of think of it that way. And it doesn't matter where in the parameter space you are, where in the sensitivity space you are. A doubling of the input always leads to a doubling of the output, whereas a nonlinear change might increase um, more slowly than doubling in some places and then more rapidly than doubling in other places, depending on the shape of that curve. So that's a good conversation. We talk about that. We also talk about convection in climate models, where convection is basically really deep mixing, really deep vertical mixing. You know, And uh, by the way, we also talk about polinias in climate models. That's another one of our topics kind of near the end of the podcast. And that conversation is a great follow-up to my chat with Ethan Campbell on a past episode. So that's all kind of part one. Part one, we ran out, ran out of time, actually, during this first recording, and we only had time to cover a non-science work. But in part two, which I'm going to put out next week, basically, we talk about Anand's pathway into science, which is a typical, you know, that's a kind of usual topic for this podcast. Anand in particular, he's somebody who's given me a lot of encouragement and really useful feedback over the years, so I'm very happy and fortunate to call him a mentor. And I'm really pleased that I was able to speak with him on the podcast, and I'm, I'm excited to share that chat with all of you. A quick technical note, there are some email chime noises in the background. Really sorry about that. You're going to keep wondering if you have some new email or not. So uh, yeah, apologies again. That's the reality of remote recording sometimes. All right. Thanks again to Professor Nanadesikan for talking with me, for taking the time out to be on the podcast. And let's just go ahead and get into this conversation with Anand Nanadesikan. Here we go. Hello, Dan. Hi, Anand. How are you? Good. Thanks for doing this. I'm glad you're here. Glad to be here. And uh, yeah, I appreciate you taking some time out to have a conversation, to have a chat. I mean, it's maybe kind of a generic question, but do you feel like you're adjusting to the lockdown and type conditions at all? Or like it's a, obviously a huge adjustment and it's kind of in just about every conversation. So it, um, and it's still something that everyone's grappling with. In some ways, yes, and in some ways, no. I mean, I think, yeah, when my daughter was three years old, she once told me, uh, my daddy works. Very, very, oh, she may have been two. I was uh, interested to see what does daddy work, and the answer was daddy works by putting his hands out in front of him and typing at a computer. Yeah, <laughs> right. So so some things don't change very much. But So that, that part of it uh, hasn't changed. What I do miss is the... Uh, being in the office with the open door and seeing who comes by and, and that spontaneity of interaction is much more difficult to have um, when everything has to be planned and everything is over over the internet. And that is actually a significant loss. Mm -hmm. and, uh, I also tend to, to do a lot of my work by walking around the building and just knocking on people's doors and seeing um, how things are going. And that's also much more difficult to do. And it's it's much 
more important to, to be intentional about it. And, and that's also a challenge. Right. You can't just have a quick idea and see who's around and exactly. you know, go run it by someone. Yeah. Like, like you said, you have to be more intentional. Yeah, it's been a learning process too, trying to figure out how to do the podcasts you know, over, over Zoom, obviously. There have been some hiccups here and there uh, trying to get all of that set up and working, but we're doing it. We're trying. It, it has been nice in one way that you know, I no longer have to... I, I used to really try to just do them in person partly because, well, to avoid things like what we've just been going through just now with the network connection. But doing it online means that I'm no longer geographically limited, right? It's easier to talk to you, to talk to loads of people, you know, in the States and all over. Um, And so I can probably do a better job of being more representative. I'm not as limited to, oh, just who happens to be passing through, you know, Bass that Mm -hmm. month or week or whatever. Mm -hmm. So have you been able to do much... uh, much science stuff lately i I haven't i've been very like slow in terms of like doing science stuff yeah it's been it's actually been and i know there are people who would hate me for saying this but the last uh three months has actually been reasonably productive yeah and that we've gotten four manuscripts out the door (laughs) you know various things revisions i've been you know working worked through revisions mostly on two two manuscripts that i'm corresponding author on and so so things are actually happening and the folks i work with who are supervising have been reasonably productive and so yes it's actually been not a bad time to do science yeah so you've been able to to do it i imagine i mean for me having two working parents and a young kid means that like very different yeah yeah that's a different different world like the It's much, it's harder to carve out time and say, okay, this is definitely research time, or this is definitely time to, I don't know, catch up on emails because anything could happen at any time. So it's, you have to to be, I have to be a bit more reactive. Well, I mean, that's, that's good, right? It's good you've been able to do stuff. What's been something that you've uh, worked on lately that you, that you'd like to talk about? So one of the things that I've, I've uh, just finished working on is looking at the question of of the how ocean biology responds to climate change and does it do so linearly or not. So there's this this uh, question that we often face when we try to understand historical changes in the functioning of the Earth system. So, for example, in the tropical Pacific, the regions where oxygen is below the level required for fish and, and mammals to, to breathe, or fish to, to breathe, is expanding. Now, is that because of natural climate variability or climate change? One of the ways in which we answer that is to run a climate model, which is what I do, and we take the, the, the model and we instantaneously quadruple carbon dioxide in the atmosphere. And that's a big perturbation. And then we look at the spatial fingerprint of that perturbation and we say, oh, well, that produces a spatial fingerprint that looks like oxygen drops in the deep ocean, oxygen rises in the intermediate waters. Is that what we see? And as it turns out, it's not what we see. So the the quadrupling, what did you say you quadrupled? Sorry, oxygen? Quadrupled carbon dioxide in the atmosphere. Yeah, quadrupled carbon dioxide in the atmosphere which is a climate forcing. So that ends up... So it warms the climate and it does that very rapidly. Mm -hmm. And it does it to a degree that is much larger than the natural variability in the climate system. Mm -hmm. And so when we look at the changes that result from that, we can say, ah, that is what carbon dioxide does to the system. Yeah, yeah. We can use that as a fingerprint of, for example, what is the pattern of change we'd expect to find in the atmosphere? What is the pattern of change we'd expect to find in the in precipitation around the world. Yeah. Uh, what is the pattern of change we expect to find in the winds? I those like those, are all great things to do. They are, yeah. I, I like, uh, I hope you don't mind, I want to I want to dig into that a little bit more because uh, sure. that, that kind of experiment is really nice. I, I like to call them step response experiments. Exactly. You know, where you just, yep. you have a step change in some variable and right. that, like you said, it excites a whole bunch of responses in your numerical representation of the system, you know, your modeled representation of the system. The point of of doing the step response is to get those fingerprints like you mentioned. I was just imagining that some people, you know, listening might be wondering, uh, oh, well, why don't you just force the climate in the way that we expect it to be forced? But, you know, you already gave the answer. That's the point is to get these big fingerprints of a response. And then you can compare those characteristic fingerprints with what's actually happening. 
So you were saying that there was a mismatch that you didn't see right. some so of these fingerprints. Right, when it comes to oxygen, there's this surprising mismatch, which is that we know that the oxygen minimum zones in the Pacific are expanding. But in fact, when most models run a climate change experiment, what they see is that intermediate depth oxygen actually goes up. That raises a question. Um, and what, But one of the questions that it raises is, Okay, we were running these experiments where we project climate change into the future, and it takes a while for the climate change signal to be to rise above natural variability. Is the response linear? Right? Is that there's a there's a fundamental assumption there that the response to a small perturbation just looks like the same thing as the response to a big perturbation, only scaled out. Mm. The question is: Is that a good is that a good assumption? When is that a good assumption? For what is that a good assumption? Where is that a good assumption? And why might it not be a good assumption? What kinds of, of, of processes contribute to that? And so one of the things my group has been doing for about the past decade is looking at um, the impact of a particular representation of a particular phenomenon in the ocean on the climate system. That phenomenon is the mixing caused by the equivalent of atmospheric storms, what we call mesoscale eddies. These eddies have a spatial scale of anywhere from 10 to 100 kilometers, maybe 200 in the tropics. And just like the highs and lows in the atmosphere, you have highs and lows in the, the sea surface height of the ocean. And there are these great big swirls of water that, and then and as a result, cause mixing. And we don't really know how to represent those in climate models. Like the climate models that we, the climate models that we run, tend to have to divide the world up into boxes, where each box might be 100 kilometers on a side or 200 kilometers on a side, and so they are much larger than the size of these eddies. So we have to represent the effect of these eddies in stirring various properties within the ocean. One of the things that we've learned by doing um, models where we change how strongly the stirring occurs as we've learned that it's very important for ocean oxygen. So this particular study, what we wanted to do was quadruple the carbon dioxide and look at it with different representations of this ocean mixing. So we could make mm -hmm. the ocean mixing very weak, we can make the ocean mixing very strong. And then what we wanted to see is, do we get different answers when we quadruple the carbon dioxide? Does the ocean respond in the same way or does it respond differently? The answers end up being kind of interesting. So what we find is that in many parts of the ocean, for example, the tropics, the response is basically the same across all models. In fact, for, for temperature or sea level rise, the models, if you quadruple CO2, the models warm by almost the identical amount. They take up about the same amount of heat. The sea level rises by the same amount. So this particular process doesn't affect the climate response all that much. And that's a useful thing to know because it tells you that if models differ from each other in their projections, it's probably not because of how they, they represent this process that we know fairly poorly. Um, so we may, know, we may not know it very well, but that lack of knowledge doesn't translate into a lack of knowledge about global warming. That's a, that's a, kind of, that's a useful thing to know. Hmm. And it turns out that if we look at things like what is the total global productivity of the ocean, how you do this mixing makes a difference. It changes the overall answer by about 10% in the modern world. And it changes the sensitivity to quadrupling CO2 by maybe 20 or 30%. So it's, it's important, but it's not first order. Now it turns out that climate models, some models predict very little change in primary productivity. Some of them predict a change of 15% per degree. Some of them predict a change of 3% per degree. Our models predict something that's more like five or six percent per degree, plus or minus two. So we're able to to say that this might be a contributor to changes in global the the sensitivity of of ocean biogeochemistry to global warming models. But it's not the dominant one, which by again that's that's an intermediate result that's that's interesting. However, when we look at whether oxygen minimum zones grow or shrink, it turns out that in our low mixing models, the oxygen minimum zones grow under climate change. And in our high mixing models, they shrink. 
Oh, wow. So the, even the sign is different. <laughs> um, and if we look at the, the volume of water, which is undersaturated with respect to, to chalk. So in these waters, chalky organisms will start seeing their shells dissolve. That volume of water that um, always increases as we increase CO, um, CO2, but the relative increase is very different. And it turns out that the increase is, is nonlinear. So if we quadruple CO2, we get a big response, but if we double CO2, we get a much smaller response. And so that would suggest that we might not have seen those responses yet in the historical record, but we might expect to see in the future. Right, so okay. running this suite of models gives us a sense of what things are robust across climate models, what things are not. And it also helps us look at the question of why things might be different across the different models. Where do you think that uh, nonlinear behavior might come from? So we think that a lot of that nonlinear behavior is modulated by what we call the convective regions. So in, for example, the Northwest Atlantic, the Labrador Sea, we know that there is mixing during the wintertime down to 2000 meters at some, in some years. Yeah, it's crazy. That mixing requires the surface water to get denser than the water 2,000 meters below. Right? And so what does isopictal mixing do? What, is the, what do the eddies do? Well, one of the things that they do is they mix salty warm water and cold fresh water, salty warm water from low latitudes with cold fresh water from high latitudes. So they warm and, and, and make more saline the surface waters of the subpolar gyres. So if you make those waters warm and more saline, the warmth will radiate over time out to space. And over time, those gyres, those surface waters will become denser. And so they're more able to sink. Hmm. And so what we find is that as we increase this mixing coefficient or the increase the efficiency of mixing, we get more convection in high latitudes. Once you have that convection on high latitudes, if that under global warming, that convection gets opposed by having fresh water, more fresh water evaporated from the tropics and dumped into the polar regions. So the surface waters become fresher, they become lighter. That works in the opposite direction as the mixing and it can turn off the convection. Mm. And nice. so whether that happens or not depends on how strong the mixing is relative to how strong the change in precipitation is right so for the very very strongest change the very very strongest mixing uh, models they're able to keep convection going in the uh, labrador sea for the weakest mixing models they barely have it there to begin with hmm. so those two models don't really show a huge change under global warming but for the intermediate case they start with mixing and so they have the mixing is able to keep the convection going. Then you warm the system, dump fresh water on the surface, the convection turns off. So, it's, so these convective locations are regions where there might be tipping points under climate change. Huh. And the idea that these mesoscale eddies contribute to where that tipping point is is an important thing that we're working on. But that's a really exciting, I mean, scientifically, that's an exciting area i think these kind of contrasts these kind of competing mechanisms you know there's several there's many examples of that sort of situation in the climate system mm -hmm. and and it's just a story i've heard many times about like well we know roughly how strong this mechanism is going to be in the future but we don't know how strong this other mechanism is going to be and usually that other mechanism is related to eddies or is related to some sub scale mm -hmm. or, or some sub-grid scale process, right? Right. So, yeah, so right. those, and that's, that's a big part of what I, our job is supposed to be right now, is trying yeah. to better quantify. Uh, yeah, from a philosophical point of view, it's one of the things that makes climate modeling challenging, right? Because we have a lot of these cases where this, the situation we have is actually set up not by a two-way balance, but by a three-way balance of processes. So if we want to know how warm the UK is, that's determined by how much sunlight it gets, by how cloudy it is above, but also by how strong the transport of heat is in the ocean to the east, yes. to the west, right? And 
if we make a change to climate, well, that's going to change the cloudiness, which changes how much sunlight is coming in. It changes how much infrared gets trapped going out, but it also can change the transport of heat in the Atlantic Ocean. And those that those three-way balances are often very difficult to understand because you can get the same answer for the modern world with different combinations of those three. That doesn't necessarily then mean the marginal sensitivity of changing one part of that is going to be right. Coupled, many, many different scales are involved. Many different processes are involved. Yeah. And it's complex and hard to represent all of those in a climate model. You mentioned, I did want to go back just briefly. You know, you mentioned that mixing area was in the North Atlantic. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's that's obviously a good example. But the oxygen minimum zone you mentioned was in the Pacific. So is that more related to Southern Ocean mixing? Probably, that, yes. Yeah. Um, what What is somewhat scary is that in... A fair number of the the climate models that we run, there's actually a similar convection region in the Northwest Pacific in the pre-industrial case. A lot of models want to generate a North Pacific intermediate water that is way, way, way too strong, Hmm. um, or they have too much convection in the Northwest Pacific in their pre-industrial case. Now, sometimes that will go away over the historical period, but... It's pretty clear from other evidence we have that's 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 likely to be unrealistic. But about half the models out there still have some somewhat too strong convection in that region, and so whether that shuts off under global warming ends up being an important determiner of whether hypoxia expands, ocean dead zones hmm. expand or not under climate change. Yeah, because the North Pacific's not normally thought of as a region of, of strong convection. Exactly. Uh, no. Exactly. Huh. And I know that a lot of models also have problems in the Southern Ocean in terms yes. of mixing too much or not mixing enough. Or you know, some models have these gigantic polinias that open up mm-hmm. in the sea ice and related to really deep convection. Yeah. Um, and there's an interesting... So yeah, mixing mixing is so hard to get right. Yeah, and, uh, that's, the, that's the other. That's the other paper that I'm co- corresponding on. Through on is actually looking at that. Uh, the Polinius, the yeah. Polinius. Um, oh, do we want to talk about that some? Sure. We talked to uh, talked to Ethan Ethan Campbell. Mm-hmm. Yeah, not too yeah. long ago. Yeah, Ethan's Ethan's paper is definitely um, referenced in ours, and uh, his basic results are consistent with the picture that we're trying to tell in that paper. So. They say we have this model suite, which run, which has various um, different representations of how strong eddy mixing is. And in one of our models, the one with the weakest mixing, we get a very, very regular polynia, op- this area of open water in the, the Southern Ocean that opens up and releases a whole bunch of heat to the atmosphere mm-hmm. and then closes up. And so then the question was, well, what is it that drives that? And so we did some analysis of it and found that 12 years before we get a polynia opening up, we have a region of salty water that develops near the, uh, near the prime meridian, the Greenwich meridian, off of Antarctica. And that's where it's centered. So we get this, this um, so region of salty water, and then that salty water propagates uh, westward. And as it does so, it comes over a region of relatively low stratification where the the warm water from the North Atlantic is drawn into the Weddell Sea and upwelled. And as as those two water masses get closer together, the saltier than normal water from the surface in the Eastern Weddell and the warm salty deep water, that you can a, a state where the the surface water gets denser than the deep water, and you you open up a polynia, you bring the the warm water to the surface, you remove its heat, um, and and then what we found was that 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 warming then because it's bringing warm salty water to the surface. The water that is now um, in the eastern Weddell is now fresher than that water. 
because the wind, the, the warming, bringing warm water to the surface causes the westerly winds in the, the Southern Ocean to, to weaken, not as much salty water is mixed up. And so the Eastern Weddell starts to get fresher and then that fresh anomaly propagates into the region and shuts off the convection. So we have an oscillator where it ends up being an oscillator where warming generates a fresh anomaly, which shuts off the warming, which generates a cold anomaly, which generates a salty anomaly that's, that turns on the convection again. <laughs> and in this particular model, we're able to analyze it really, really well. And you can, do some clever statistical analysis and come up with an oscillator mechanism and, and oh, cool. uh, um, that predicts the period, which ended up being about 50 years. Um, 50 so year it's, period. it's, it's, a, it's a fun piece of analysis, but the, uh, the question is, does it really happen? Of course, the answer is we don't know. Yeah. Yeah. Because we only have 40 years of data and this predicts an oscillation with about a 50 year period. You mentioned Ethan Campbell. He did this really nice analysis of the, the most recent opening up of a Polina in the Wood Sea. And what he found was, was relatively consistent with what we find, which is that the Polina was driven by a salinification of the surface. And that salinification was caused by surface currents bringing in a saltwater anomaly. And it was caused by anomalous winds. So the idea that winds generate surface anomalies that then trigger convection, um, which is what Ethan found for this particular recent plenia, is the same mechanism that we find. Now, that doesn't mean that we get it for the right reasons or it has the right period, or, um, but it is, uh, it's at least broadly consistent. It says that the model is telling a story uh, that at least mechanistically corresponds to some things that happen in the real world. It's such a cool uh, uh, paper. Just came back. Just got a second round of review finished. So I'm hoping I'll hear any minute. <laughs> maybe now. Maybe now. Maybe now. Yeah. Like <laughs> you can read us the reviews online and uh, <laughs> just live. Yeah, I, the Polina is such a cool uh, thing to talk about because they were observed in the 70s, mm-hmm. right at the start of the satellite era, and then they stopped happening. <laughs> For decades, and then they only ha- they came back just a couple of years ago for a couple of years in a row, and uh, I think you know for a while one of the ideas floating out there was that oh that in the seventies that that must have been it you know before the new ones opened up there were there was the idea that like oh we we just missed one possibility as we have now transitioned into a a world where we're not going to get those kind of polinas anymore because of climate change and whatnot. Can you say anything about what do you think might happen to that cycle in the future? So that's a great question. I mean, it turns out that yes, under climate change, these polinias do tend to shut off for a certain amount of time. And then at some point they reestablish themselves. Hmm. Um, it's also the case that stronger winds over the Southern Ocean tend to move you towards a more more favorable condition for the Polina because they tend to expel fresh water. And something else that has happened over that same time period from 1977 to the present is that the ozone hole has given us stronger winds over the Southern Ocean. So there is the possibility that the ozone hole and global warming are working in opposite directions right now uh, as regards to the Polina. And that probably over time, global warming will win and the Polina will shut off for, for a longer time. Hmm. There are some questions about how much Um, variability there has been um, over the past couple thousand years in how how active that polina has been or how active the variability in the southern ocean has been and there's evidence of multi-decadal oscillations in the winds these tend to be from individual locations turns out to be very hard to line them up with each other so i believe jessica inahosa has done some work in in new zealand looking at particular deposits and fjords and, sh- and shown multi-decadal, multi-centennial scale variability in uh, how strong the westerly winds were there at one point. And then there's other people who've done this in Tasmania and other people have done it in Chile. And it's, it turns out to be rather hard to line up those patterns. And it turns out that if you look at the, the uh, 
the wind pattern from the Polina, it is not, we tend to think of the Southern Ocean as having this continuous band of wind, but it's not actually a continuous band of winds. It has some structure to it. Right, so right. the difference between having the westerly wind band get stronger or the westerly wind band elongate, those are two, those could be two different things. And so it's uh, it's kind of surprising how we still struggle with these dynamics of jets in both the atmosphere and the ocean, even though we've had decent theoretical ideas of what causes them for 50, 60 years. Well, there's so much variability and there's so, there's yes. so nonlinear that... And we, and we can't, that's right, and we can't um, measure a lot of the things that we need to measure in terms of their dynamics because the important dynamics are not the velocities associated, are not the jet itself, but the smaller circulations that pump momentum into it or flux it downwards. And, and, and those are, are hard enough to measure in the atmosphere, though you can do it um, reasonably well. Uh, you can measure the horizontal fluxes reasonably well. They're much harder to do in the ocean. <laughs> Very different time scales and yeah. yeah. Like well, the... and also, you can see the atmosphere. <laughs> <laughs> So. Yeah, it's hard to just sit. Yeah, in the ocean, like it's it's sort of doable, but uh, yeah, you can't just put a tower there and expect it right. to sit there and measure the fluxes directly. Yeah, who who else involved with the Polinia paper? If you want anybody, you want to give a, a shout out to on the podcast? Um, well, actually, it has a bunch of undergraduates who worked on it. Um, one of my senior thesis students, Cassie Speller worked on it for her senior thesis. Um, I had a summer student from Penn, Grace Ringline. And if it, the, uh, the idea, I had this idea that this could be a, this could actually be true. And the first student to actually try it out was a student of Rio Marinos at Penn, um, John Sansusi. So he's on, on the paper as well, because he was the one who said, yeah, well, when I try your idea on the model, I get a period of 50 years. And I went, huh. That's interesting because I get a period of 50 years. Okay, this is worth following. It's really cool. So, you know, you all have been able to boil down this complex system, this complex phenomenon into a relatively simple system of components that interact with each other, like a dynamical system almost. Is mm-hmm. it that, that sort of uh, that sort yeah. of approach? Yeah. Um, yeah. That's really cool. So you've got a bit of a history with coming up with uh, these nice <laughs> simplified, <laughs> simplified representations of ocean phenomena, which is a it's a cool space to be in. Uh, of course, I'm I'm referring to your 1999 science paper where you have the ocean as represented by two boxes and uh, talk about the fluxes between those boxes. You know, North Atlantic deep water formation and upwelling throughout the rest of the the, the kind of low latitudes. And then the Southern Ocean balance between, you know, wind-driven northward flux and southward eddy-driven fluxes. So that paper I'm familiar with because, well, you know, as you know, my my whole dissertation was basically like let's <laughs> let's let that evolve with time and see what happens. Let's like, do that's actually true. Let's do that. <laughs> well, if you were to try to rewrite that paper today, like what what would be different right, about it? Differently. I have actually revisited it in one sense. Um, this was another undergraduate, uh, another paper that I published with a couple of undergraduates two years ago, where we used extended that box model to look at the stability of the overturning circulation. Hmm. So again, the idea was that we know that climate models, as you said, in the in this box model, the the overturning in the North Atlantic is determined by a balance between how much water upwells through the, the, the low latitude thermocline. So the basic idea with, with the, that paper is that the, the North Atlantic overturning is the major transformation of light water to dense water in the ocean, and that it has to be balanced by a transformation back the other way. And that transformation is determined by two things. One is the, the mixing down of heat in the tropics, and the other is a balance between upwelling and freshening of waters in the Southern Ocean that is opposed by eddies, right? We know that models may not get the right upwelling of heat or 
mixing down of heat in the tropics. We know that models may have eddies that are too strong or too weak. We may have know that models may have winds that are too strong or too weak. And so what does that then do to the stability of the overturning circulation? And we found that, again, you could take a very simple box model and show that if you change the winds and, and, and you try to compensate by that for that change by fiddling with your fluxes so you get the right, right uh, overturning circulation, in some cases that actually works fairly well and in some cases it doesn't. I think one thing that I would definitely, well, I'm not sure I would change the original paper, but there are definitely follow-ups to it in terms of the relationship between winds and the overturning and the density structure that, that I, would, I would do. One thing that we're actually talking, I've been talking about with one of the grad students in my department is extending it to two basins so that you have the overturning in the North Atlantic and the overturning in the North Pacific. Mm -hmm. I'm looking at how those trade off against each other. Um, yeah, Leslie Allison did some multi-basin kind of work. Right. Yeah, yes. not exactly the thing you're talking about, but with with uh, you know what happens if you have multiple basins, you know, in this kind of adjustment process. Right. I, uh, I I really love models like that. It's pen and paper models, you know, you could call mm -hmm. them. And like you said, you don't have the you don't have eddies in there exactly. You don't have a way to represent storms, right. but you do your best by writing down what you think is the relationship between the large scale properties that you do know something about, uh, at least in that framework and the effect of the small scales. Yeah. And yeah. You know, it's, it, it's, it's interesting having written a model like that because this was basically a summer's work hmm. and then it becomes what you're known for. I think, in fact, I think you were the one at the last ocean sciences I went to who, uh, um, introduced me to one of our colleagues from France who looked at me and said, oh, so do you know on And there? said, oh, yes, Nanadesic in 1999. <laughs> like, oh, <laughs> to, to, to a reference. Oh, no, you're not just that. That's, <laughs> you know, not. that's actually kind of cool and <laughs> actually kind of depressing at the same time. Uh. <laughs> No, no, it's it's a good entryway in. It's not it's not yes. it's not all of you, but it's. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> but I do Would, think it's an interesting um, illustration of how. You know, I'm very proud of the work, but and a lot of work I had done before and after set me up for it. Hmm. But in many ways, it was a case of being in the right place at the right time, because Robbie Togwiler really should have written that paper five years before if he'd had a more mathematical cast in mind. He would have. Hmm. There were yeah, there were certainly other people who could have written the paper um, had they who had all of the data there, right? But who didn't? Um, that that was not the way they thought about the ocean, right? right? So that's that's legitimate. Then I mean, you you thought about it and you you did have that framework. So you know, true. You, you, but but it is one of those those things where you know, in science, being. Um, successful is not just a matter of being smart, although that certainly helps. It's also about the luck of finding the right problem at the right time in the right place with the right resources to do it. Yeah, that's true. And if we turn that around, and that's an important idea to get out there, you know, to people listening, like uh, who uh, a lot of folks listening, you know, they're kind of early on in their careers possibly. So they might be wondering like if they're going to be able to write their own not a Descon 99, you know, paper that, and it, that, that, that is important, right? That it's not just about putting in more hours or something. There is an element of, yes, you, you do need to be like prepared, right? You do need to, 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 you do need to work hard, obviously to do it, but the, there is that element of randomness to it of, is there the right problem waiting out there for you that you can um, right. add your, your touch to, or add your, put your spin on it and help people see things in a new way. Right. Uh, yeah. Right. Yeah. And it, although I guess a, a lot of work, maybe we're going to see fewer things. I'm just guessing, but maybe we're going to see fewer things like that. And maybe we're going to see, maybe we're going to see fewer single author papers like that. I wonder if we're going to see more and more like big collaborative efforts, you know, that, um, that involve yes like a. No, I think hmm. yes and no, because on the one hand, we're entering a world where, no one person can take all the data. 
Um, but on the other hand, we're entering a world where that data is still, large data sets are available to lots of people to look at. I do think that particularly when it comes to things like biology, where there's this fire hose of data that can be generated by genomics and, and other techniques, we're just beginning to scratch the surface of that. And I do think that there are some fairly basic signals there that are just sort of waiting to be discovered. There's a lot of low-hanging fruit in that sense that is out there to be discovered. Mm. I think in, in physical oceanography, it may be the case, the sort of classical physical oceanography, there are the, the number of fundamentally new ideas um, may be lower and and as a field, we're more limited by just needing the observations. Yeah. Um, but I do think that there are still fundamental things to be discovered by looking at just looking carefully at the data we already have. Mm. So you know, I, I think 20 years ago, that was very clearly true for chemistry. I think it still can be true now for some versions of chemistry. Yeah. Um, brain chemistry, and I think it's it's definitely true for um, for biology. That reminds me of something that I wanted to ask you. So one of the one of your papers that stood out to me from a few years ago was the one about how ocean color can steer hurricanes or can affect mm -hmm. the tracks of hurricanes, which I thought was such a a really cool and striking result. Because uh, as a biased physical oceanographer, I'm so used to the biology and chemistry just kind of riding along with the physics, right? The physics does its thing, it's momentum and heat and it's, you know, Newton and then Kelvin and, and then all the chemistry and biology just happens on top of that, like almost mm -hmm. as a, it just has to follow the physics, right? Passive. So I thought that result was really cool. The idea that no, the ocean color could actually change heating such that it could actually affect hurricane tracks. Mm -hmm. And I thought I would ask you, do you, are there other areas or other potential areas where you see these feedbacks where are there places where the biology and the chemistry could actually feed back onto the physics and have that kind of... Uh, well, the big one where we know that they do is atmospheric carbon dioxide because we know that the ocean has to be involved in the transition between pre-industrial levels of carbon dioxide, which were 280 parts per million, and glacial levels, which were 180 parts per million. And so we know that that plays some role, that the ocean plays a significant role in the long-term evolution of atmospheric chemistry and how much heat the atmosphere traps. So that's something that, yeah, we know that that's true. In terms of ocean heating, we do also know that, for example, the color of the ocean affects the annual cycle of heating. And that if you make the ocean more turbid, you get warmer summers, but you may get colder winters as well because the heat that's deposited near the surface is then released to the atmosphere over the course of the fall and it's not there in the winter time to, to, to mitigate um, cold air. And there are parts of the world, for example, the Baltic, where this may actually be a significant driver of changes in the annual cycle and therefore changes in temperature extremes. We've also been looking at ocean color in the Southern Ocean and finding that how you represent that may be important for understanding why the Southern Ocean is changing under climate change. So a few years ago, we had a project where we were, our, our interest was in understanding how the absorption of, of radiation by both living material, chlorophyll, and dead material, which tends to be yellow or is used referred to as yellow stuff or gelb stuff, affects climate. And so there's, there tends to be lots of yellow material in the Arctic and in coastal regions. And so what one of my students did was put together a representation of shortwave absorption that included both chlorophyll and this yellow stuff and divided them up rather than just lumping them together. And so as a result, it had less of an impact from chlorophyll. 
And so then we ran it in models and looked at what the impact of the yellow stuff was. But what we didn't look at was the, the impact of, of, of dividing up this absorption into two different absorbers. And one of the things that we were looking for was, well, what does it do to the Arctic? We were expecting this to, to have a different, make a difference in the Arctic, particularly under climate change. And so we did this simulation where we increased carbon dioxide, a step function increase of carbon dioxide in the atmosphere. And we found it made no difference at all in the Arctic, but it did make a difference in the Southern Ocean. So it turned out that what was important was not the Arctic where by reducing the, the absorption from chlorophyll and increasing the absorption from colored dissolved materials, you basically got the same result. What mattered was the Southern Ocean that had no colored dissolved materials at all, very little, where you had suddenly made sunlight penetrate deeper. And what that did was it allowed for heat to build up in the deep ocean. And then under climate change, the delivery of that heat back to the surface was shut off and the Southern Ocean cooled. This is something that is actually happening in the real world. The Southern Ocean is cooling and is not simulated in most climate models. We, by, by changing the optical parameterization in the ocean, we were able to reproduce a an observed result that most climate models do not. Now that doesn't mean we get it for the right reasons, kinds of other caveats go along with that, but it is an example of how um, living biota or the, the, the biogeochemical cycles in the ocean um, could have an impact on, on, on physics in some, some fairly significant ways. That's a great example. I, uh, and couldn't, help but notice like you've got a lot of students that you've worked with a lot of undergrad students and grad students and that's really great like it's great you've been able to you know entrain especially so many undergrads into like actual research where they end up on papers and things and i've i've really uh i've been able to work with a lot of great undergrad and grad students over here as well and it's it's a real privilege i mean and it is a real privilege yeah it is a real privilege you know i've had um I had the really good fortune of, of working with students from um, very, very good universities who are very highly motivated and just curious. Yeah. Yeah. And that, you know, it's one of the things I'm really thankful for. <laughs> yeah. And I end up learning a lot from the students and yeah. uh, you know, because like you said, they're, if you work with a driven and curious person, like they can, they can add a lot to your research life. They can bring. When they start pushing you, it's like, okay, so your explanation doesn't make any sense to me. <laughs> uh, hmm. <laughs> well, that's probably because the explanation actually doesn't make any sense. Okay. Let's try again. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Let's dig into this. Let's see. <laughs> So I've said it on here before, but like I just like to remind students that that they can have a lot of value for their the people they're working with for their whether it's a professor or you know head of a group or something like that. You really can add a lot, mm -hmm. and that it's it's important to try to recognize your value. One of the things this might sound like a little bit of a tangent, but in terms of like working with students and encouraging students like i know i know from personal experience that you're like really good at providing encouragement and that kind of positive feedback and uh so i i want to tell you a real story it's a short story but like it's it stuck with me and you won't remember this this was such a brief nothing thing but um, so i was doing my phd and i came out to princeton uh just to give a short talk i don't know if this was 2010 or 2011 I think it it was for one of these I climate. Twenty ten, because I was I had moved on by twenty eleven. Okay, right, twenty ten. Uh, I think it was for one of these climate process team meetings mm -hmm. that my advisor uh, has been involved with. I ended up filling in for him and giving a talk. Mm -hmm. I don't remember ex exactly the configuration, but mm -hmm. uh, I was showing a slide from a paper that eventually came out in twenty eleven, and I got to like one of the key figures. And uh, you you gave me a big thumbs up and like you know and, I, and that was really that honestly was really encouraging and that honestly like did mean something to me as like somebody who's just starting out you know I uh, had only I hadn't been in the field very long at all you know I came from more of a physics and math kind of background so 
everyone in the field was new to me. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it, it meant a lot to have somebody who yeah. is established, like, you know, give me a big thumbs up. That was like a real source of encouragement. And it, and it didn't take much at all from, from you, I, you know, like a thumbs up. I think it's, so first I wanted to say, you know, thanks. Thank you for that. Mm-hmm. That I, I appreciated that. And that actually was real, real fuel in my tank. And to kind of highlight how important those small gestures can be mm-hmm. for, for, for encouraging the people that you're, that you're working with, you know, you've, you've given me other, other bits of good positive feedback over the years and encouragement. And that's, that's all very, very appreciated. So we we're kind of, transitioning i guess to the you know they're usually a couple hours long are you okay for time what's your time look um, like i actually probably should go in about five minutes but we could we could pick Ooh. this up again another time if you want to okay sure yeah that's fine because we talked a lot about your science and then the other bit we usually talk about and the kind of second half is like your pathway into science and what that looked like you know your experiences mm-hmm. and then i like to talk to people about what they kind of learned along the way Mm-hmm. So, do, do you want actually? If we want to, do we want to actually uh, just stop now and come back and and pick this up again tomorrow? Let's see. So, what's your schedule look like tomorrow? Maybe I'll uh, maybe I'll stop it for now since you need to go soon. I'll just do the stop the recording bit. There you have it. Thanks for joining us. That was my conversation with Professor Anand Nanadesikan. I hope that you enjoyed that. So uh, you can find Professor Nanadesikan on his university webpage. I don't think he's on Twitter as far as I know. I'm on there, at Dan Jones Ocean, and you can follow the podcast at ClimateSciPod. Okay, so I've started sharing something personal at the end of these episodes. It's kind of a way to say thanks for reaching all the way to the end, if you're still here, still with us. Uh, so I thought today I'll do a little exercise I will ask the question, like, how am I doing right this instant? Like, how's my actual physical presence doing? All right, well, it's warm in this room, um, a little bit humid. It's kind of afternoon time. My stomach hurts a little bit. I got some tension in my legs. Um, I've got a lot of hair. My hair is very thick right now. (laughs) I haven't cut it. I haven't had it cut since the lockdown started back in February, March. So, yeah, I'm feeling pretty scruffy. And that's kind of keeping my head warm, which is fine. All right. So that's kind of how I'm doing right now. I guess I'm all right. I guess I'm fine. Uh, Just a little stomachache. But yeah, I hope you're all doing well out there. Be well. Take care of yourselves. Take care of each other. And uh, yeah, we'll talk to you next time. Okay. Bye-bye.